Hello, I'm Terry Schultz, and I am channeling Brussels. Getting newsmakers, movers, and shakers to lose the lingo, burst out of the Brussels bubble, and have real conversations about the critical foreign and security policies shaping our world. It's the rest of the story, beyond the few seconds of sound bites that make it into the news. This week's Channeling Brussels is brought to you by the Atlantic Council. And this week's Channeling Brussels is joining the New Atlanticist hack of the Atlantic Council newsletter in honor of Women's Day. Our guest this week is Ambassador Mariette Schurman. She's NATO's special representative for women, peace, and security, what's known shorthand as 1325. Longhand, that's United Nations Security Council Resolution 1325. Passed in the year 2000, Resolution 1325 was groundbreaking legislation obligating U.N. member governments to elevate the concerns and well-being of women and children, to work to prevent violations of women's rights and gender-based violence, to increase the involvement of women in peace negotiations and post-conflict reconstruction. Well, since the year 2000, there has been some progress. The post at NATO was created in 2012, but not all international organizations have a person looking after its implementation. And Ambassador Shurman agrees there's a long way to go inside institutions, as well as in a world that seems to have gotten only more horrifically violent for women. Think about Farkunda in Afghanistan or the Yazidi women in Iraq, the Chibok girls in Nigeria, and so many others. It, it depresses me. But Mariette Shurman says the only way to go is forward. Let's hear from her. Okay, thank you, Ambassador Sherman, for coming to our special Women's Day podcast, although we should be doing these not just for Women's Day, of course. I'm sure you would agree. Exactly. So you are the ambassador for 1325, and I'm going to let you explain what that is. Um, everybody, everybody around NATO knows it just by its shortened term, 1325, but I think a lot of people would be surprised to find out that NATO has a special representative for women in peace and security. So... What do you do? Why do we need you? And um, what are your hopes in this job? Well, it's a lot of, a lot of questions in one question. Let me start off. As you said, many people know 1325. Uh, sometimes they say it's a code name, mm -hmm. uh, but maybe not necessarily knowing what 1325 entails. And hence also not understanding why it matters to NATO. Why does NATO care about women, peace and security? So as I say, always stress is that Resolution is a Security Council Resolution 1325 adopted in the year 2000, which is titled Women, Peace and Security, but it's not only about women. It is really, as, as I normally explain, it is about inclusive security. It's the codification of the historic lesson that we cannot be free and at peace as long as we're not inclusive, as long as not everybody in our societies, men and women, boys and girls, can engage um, can contribute, and as long we don't as we don't use the full potential that our societies and our organisations have to offer. So, thirteen twenty five is really an agenda for change. It's an agenda about promoting inclusive security, and as the only kind of peace and security that that is sustainable when everybody is included. So, it's about inclusive security. It's not about women, but it's about our impact, about our sustainability and what we achieve. It's about our effectiveness. 
Do other organizations have a 1325 representative? It's a UN Security Council resolution, so theoretically yeah. every every international yeah. organization should be should have somebody working on implementation, no? Well, the United Nations itself has a host of special representatives and a Secretary General special representatives, but interestingly enough, not a special representative precisely on women, peace and security. So they may be a bit more compartmentalized. Uh, they have a special representative to prevent sexual violence in conflict. You have special representatives... Um, we have a director for UN Women as an umbrella organization. So they have, but they don't have a dedicated person um, dedicated to implementing Resolution 2025 and all the resolutions that came after that into the day-to-day -day work, which is my job here. The only other organization that really has a similar setup as we have, interestingly enough, is the African Union. And the European Union has since last year a senior coordinator, a senior uh, advisor um, on gender and women, peace and security in the external action service. Uh, also, the OSCE has a, um, it's not called a special representative, but you also have a senior advisor. The setup is slightly different and not as high in the organization as NATO has decided to do, really as the, let's say, gender advisor to the Secretary General itself. Who himself was a gender advisor at one point. Exactly, <laughs> and a champion, and he still is a champion for gender equality, which is very important. But this, this is a structure that we have throughout the whole NATO setup, set also in our commands, and it's rather unique. And it's interesting to see that now, since the resolution in 2015 at the 15th anniversary. The UN actually has been looking critically at its own structures, why it's not working, and has decided to copy basically the NATO model, which is that it's not the responsibility of a special representative or a gender advisor to implement a resolution. It's everybody's it's responsibility. It's everybody's responsibility, and in the end, it's a leadership responsibility. Right? So it's the person in command who's responsible that whatever we do under a NATO flag meets the commitments that our allies entered into under several United Nations Security Council resolutions. And this is one of them. So it's the person, the man, the woman in charge, civilian or, or political, who's responsible. And they have senior advisors who support them in delivering on that obligation. So that's the setup that we have. Okay, before I get into some, yeah. some more questions about this, tell me, on a daily basis, what do you do? I looked at your webpage, I looked at your appearances, you give speeches, you hold civil society meetings, um, which I'd like to be part of sometime, <laughs> I put that on the record. Um, but what else do you do? What do, you, do you walk around the, the hallways and say, hmm, it looks like this is an all-male hallway? Because I look at hmm. the, the all-male panels and say, that's not acceptable. So is this kind of what you do and think, where can I, where can I work harder? How can I get women elevated? Well, as I said, if we, if we all agree that we can only be at peace uh, and secure when we are inclusive, that has two sides to it, both in how we organize ourselves internally and what we try to achieve outside. How can we increase our impact by being better aware of the impact that we have on societies and the different impact that we can have on we men We being and women. women? We? We as NATO. We as NATO. Right? Okay. So uh, when we talk about NATO missions, but all NATO activities across the board. Right? So... We have an action plan. Uh, NATO has an action plan that it has actually also all our allies and um, uh, 27 partner nations have signed up to that action plan. So 55 nations made it their action plan where we try to think through for whatever we, think we, whatever we do, our day-to-day -day tasks throughout the free core tasks that NATO has in its mandate, 
what does the resolution 1325, inclusive security, what does it mean for us in terms of how we organize ourselves and what we try to achieve, how we formulate or define our mission and how we behave in what we do in missions out of area, but also when it comes to our collective defense. So our agenda has very much both an external and an internal part. So I'm also balancing in terms of my activities, um, um, internal work in terms of uh, influencing policies, make them gender sensitive in terms of improving the gender balance in-house. So, you know, what can we do to this sort of cultural change that is needed to, in, in the end, become a more diverse and inclusive organization ourselves? So that's the internal part. And look at what, as I said, what are our mission objectives and to what extent we are actually contributing to promoting gender equality and hence stability worldwide and preventing conflict, what in the end is our final goal. So it's external, internal, and I said my role is really to support the organization and our structures to deliver on this ambition. We have practical advice. We talk a lot about practical tools. It has to be relevant for day-to-day -day work. It's not an extra burden. It is a, a gender lens, is a tool that allows you to better understand what you're doing, what your impact is, how you can avoid adverse impact. So really, I try to translate in day to, into day-to-day -day work and objectives what this agenda could mean for not only doing the right thing, but doing the right thing right and better. Um, I know that when the, when the European Union is looking at appointments, a lot of the problems it has is that women are not being promoted in member states to get up to the levels where Federica Mogherini or somebody can pick them to be their advisors. So, I mean, this has to start much lower, doesn't it? I mean, and I would imagine the same is true in allies. You can't, um, and, and I have to say, I'm one of the women who doesn't want to be picked for anything just because I'm a woman. I really don't yeah. like that. And, and I think a lot of women, women don't want that. At the same time, if you don't have women to choose from, there's automatically a dearth of choice for you. And, mm. a, and so how do you, how do you work? How do you work? <clears throat> excuse me, at a lower level, getting women up to the level where you have a, a variety of people to choose from. It was absolutely true that also like any international organization, when it comes to, in the end, uh, promoting women in, in decision-making and in leadership positions, obviously depend on the nations that supply candidates, mm -hmm. particularly for the top positions. So that is a matter of increasing awareness on both sides uh, and setting shared ambition that we feel not only because it's a nice thing to do, it's not a, it's not, um, uh, it's, 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 it's not, not an extra. It's, it's not, not an extra. It's not being nice to women or no. politically correct. It's it should because have already happened. A, a recognition <laughs> that mixed teams perform better, that the more diverse we are, the more creative we are, and we need that creativity to get through this change and adaptation process that this also this organization requires to meet up to the challenges of today. So it's a necessity. And I think there's a general recognition that we need to be more diverse, but then indeed it is like how do we get a more diverse group of talent interested in working for the alliance at different levels? And not only how do you recruit them in a more balanced way, a more diverse way, how do you get them in, but particularly how do you keep them in and promote them? So it's really an effort about, it's, it's an effort, well, and for us, it's also not losing people, right, talented people, because they don't feel that this is their organization, or they don't feel being used to the full potential. So it's really about talent management, about organizational and cultural change. Um, I always say, if women 
female professionals are not interested, they don't apply to NATO jobs that they would qualify for, probably also a lot of men don't apply for the same reason. And the conclusion is basically we miss a lot of talent that we want to have, but for the right or the wrong reasons, they don't feel attracted to this organization. So it has to do with image, with perceptions of what NATO is about. We have to tell our story better. We have to make clear that we have highly professional men and women in this organization and allow them to tell their story on what their drives them and what is their passion um, and what they try to achieve so that actually young men and women start to see that this is something they want to dedicate themselves to. And we can plug your podcast, Women of NATO. Hashtag Women of NATO on Twitter. You can find all, all the podcasts. It's Absolutely. a great initiative. We have many women from all backgrounds, not only from the international staff, international military staff, but also from the national delegations, sharing their story of about what is, how did they get there, uh, what are their lessons, what is their advice for young professionals if you know they consider a career in peace and security. Um, and it's just also fascinating to listen to because it's such a diversity of, of experiences. Um, but I think the most important thing is no one indeed wants to be nominated because they're a man or a woman. Right. But we all agree that we recruit on the basis of merit and not gender. And we have to be aware that there's a lot of unconscious bias in all our minds. This is how we work. That if you don't think outside the box, you go for what is similar to yourself, what you recognize. Right. And that is who we recruit. So its part is make sure that we are attractive to the young generation, to young men and women. And it's partly being aware of our unconscious bias that you have a tend to sort of it's a self-perpetuating mm-hmm. um, culture unless you deliberately try to break that, break that culture by infusing new talent and diverse talent. And that's very much what we're trying to do in-house, getting younger people in, young professionals right. with diverse right. backgrounds, <laughs> men and women. Um, it's a challenge that's not unique for NATO. All international organizations struggle with that. Many of our national str- uh, uh, organizations struggle with that. But I find it fascinating because it's such an impetus for an overall cultural change. Really, as I said, as part of the adaptation and and transformation we have to go to, to be a modern and ready and responsive organization that is up to the challenges of today. So it's very much part of that agenda. There's a big commitment. We're struggling to get there. But I think definitely the, the political engagement and the engagement of men and women at all levels to make this change um, is really encouraging. And I think we see the first results both at national levels. If you look at the data, for instance, for women in armed forces in our allies, last year for the first time we really started across the board to make uh, progress, um, which is commendable. And it's interesting also to what extent that is the result of a deliberate effort in many capitals and many national structures, but also a lot of mutual learning from each other, from what works and what doesn't. Um, and we start to see the result there. Well, so if, if the military th- can do it, we as NATO here should be able to do it as well. And when you think about the ministerials, it's always fun to see the pictures of the ladies. Yes. The lady defense ministers, the lady foreign ministers. Yes. Um, I do love those pictures. And SecGen always yes. delights in, in, in advertising but that Obviously, well. very proud that, that 25% of our uh, ministers of defense is female. Um, I'm not sure if you're aware how many female ministers of foreign affairs we have. I don't know. Do you know off the top of your head? I'm afraid we only have one. Hold on. Let me think. Who is it? (laughs) No, who is it? 
Last year we had three, but we lost all three of them. But since January, Canada, well, we had, has, Canada has a few. Oh, no, of course, Christian Freeland. Yes, exactly. Yes. So, but to, oh, uh, last for the time being, this, <laughs> this is the only one. So, it, again, it's interesting to a certain extent. I always say that it seems that the defense sector is leading the way. Isn't that interesting? Because you would just, I mean, I would just think my unconscious bias would think that foreign ministers would be. Would no, be we female have more first. female heads of state in government than female ministers of foreign affairs. Oh, and it's not about numbers, right? I think it's also about trends. Um, uh, but it's rather telling. I think that we see actually, as I said, you know, you see national defense structures. Uh, our defense and military, although the percentage overall is still very low compared to civilian sectors, but they're rather they're making rather big progress. That is that and is really interesting. Yeah, and that is interesting. I would not have expected that. Yeah, exactly. And for us as NATO, it's good because obviously we're not only a military organization, but it's definitely part of our heritage and our background. That explains why the level of the participation of women uh, is, and also younger people, by the way, is relatively low. Um, but it's also, I think, there's definitely the ambition to be leading, by example. Well, and we, and also we, when it comes to this cultural change and transformation we have to go to and diversion, uh, diversity and inclusion. And so, we have to mention Rose Gottemiller, of course. And now obviously we have. we have very proud to have Rose Gottemiller in. I mean, such an experienced uh, and very inspiring person, Jeez. leader. Um, and um, I think with a very inspiring Secretary General and an extremely committed and inspiring Deputy Secretary General, I think, again, you know, it's a good... We set the pace, right? And it's something, I think, for the Alliance to be proud of. Um, and we're not there yet. And as I said, we have the same challenges as all other international organizations. The UN has a similar thing. You have one new ASG, female ASG, and you, draw, you lose another one. So it's very, very slow, but it starts with the recognition that we need a diversity of talent. We need a diversity of perspectives for us to increase our innovation, innovative power and our creativity to face these challenges of today. And as soon as we are aware of that and we agree on an ambition level, we will get there. Right? It's a matter of awareness because that will force us then to decide, like, why are we not getting there? And then to find measures evidence-based measures that will actually help us to move forward. So I think that is the journey that NATO has started on in the, in the past years. Okay, let's get out of the building now yeah. and talk about, about actually women, peace, and security. Um, as it says on, I believe, on the 1325's page, a webpage um, in NATO, um, it's more dangerous to be a woman in a war zone than to be a soldier yes. in a war zone. And that is... That's just horrific. Yeah, it's a quote it? from a Dutch general, Kamart. Yeah. Um, and um, I think generally, I mean, with this, it's it's not only in, in, in the recent years, it's for several decades already, the, the kind of warfare that we're confronted today is a higher risk for civilians than for soldiers. Um, so, yes, it is more dangerous to be a civilian than a soldier. And, and women and children bear the brunt of, of, um, of the war. Um, the thing about the women, peace and security agenda is very much like, you know, if women are more um, bear the brunt of war, why don't they have a say in stopping the war? And that is, um, as I said, this is a, a discussion that started more than 100 years ago with the First World War. Women demanding their right to vote and using the First World War as an example that, you know, we need to, this affects us. We need to have a say. We want to have a seat at the table. 
we wanted our needs are, are listened to as well, and we want to contribute to finding a solution and to rebuilding peace. Um, and you see, with the women's marches, 8 of March started very much there, right? It's interesting, 100 years later, we, we seem to be in a similar stage that... Um, We're going we to get to that, ambassador. <laughs> We're going to get to that. But I mean, that is really the philosophy of women, peace and security. It's not only about women as victims. The core of the resolution is women as agents in their own right. And the fact that we also know statistically, you know, that is that the more inclusive we are, the more stable we are. And the chance when women have a say at the table in, you know, conflict situations and negotiations, uh, the chance that we get to a peace agreement and that that peace agreement will actually last increases by 35%. So there's a clear rational to be inclusive. And we can reason logically why that is. It's just a matter of reminding ourselves and then making sure how do we make sure that all the stakeholders actually have a seat at the table and not only those who picked up the weapons. Okay, but let's look at the world. The world since 2000, since the resolution um, was passed, has not gotten more peaceful. No, no it, I, I agree. I mean, if you, if you look at that, I mean, we still have a very long way to go, as I always say, to translate those principles that we all agree on into real results on the ground. Um, and um, if you take Afghanistan as an example, of course, it's still a very dangerous place to be. But I think what I find inspiring in Afghanistan is really the resilience and the hope that the men and women that stick their neck out uh, there, that they have, right? And the message I get there is very much like, and we have now a very committed leadership, but if you look at civil society men and women, uh, human rights defenders in Afghanistan, what they tell me is that for decades we have been fighting to get back the respect for human rights and dignity that is part of our culture. And finally, you start to support us in doing the right thing. We will do it. We need you to help us create the space for the respect for human rights, to safeguard the space that has been created through our 15 years of engagement already. We will do it, but please help us to, to safeguard that space. Um, so I think it's hopeful because they really, it is their agenda. Um, they don't expect for us from us to save them. They want to drive this agenda, but they expect us to support them in empowering them, in providing a platform, in, um, uh, in training, making sure also that the national authorities and Afghan national um, defense and security forces have the awareness of what their obligations are, international humanitarian law, the obligations to children armed conflicts, child protection, um, prevention of, of uh, conflict-related sexual gender-based violence. So, but it's very much through our train, assist and advise support now that they will be in the lead and they will have to do it now. But the positive news, I think, about Afghanistan is a very strong political commitment to, as President Ghani always says, give back to the daughters of the Afghan citizens the same opportunities as his grandmother once had. And he's extremely committed he to doing committed. so. I interviewed him about uh, the Farkunda incident. I was yes. there just after it happened. And he was extremely strong on that yeah. and extremely reassuring. But let's be honest. don't We can't sugarcoat the situation in the country as a whole. I mean, it's 
it it has the security for a lot of people has deteriorated even over the the arc of of the the years that NATO has been there and leading leading the war there um and a lot of women you know a lot of schools are closed again there's mm. a lot of violence you know it's i mean it's going to be up and down but we shouldn't pretend that NATO has has put in place a a perfect platform there for people to you know sort of aspire to higher higher needs because there's still so much violence and violence against women and it's not all, all shiny like it's not there. all shiny but i think the, the the signal of hope is really and i also spoke for instance to to the un special representative on children in armed conflict uh, recently uh, several times but the good story about afghanistan is again i said the leadership and the commitment and their willingness to drive they want to be in the driver's seat. They fully recognize their responsibility. Yes, for us, it's a long-term engagement, right? Before we're there, we can really hand over. Um, but I think that is really a very, big, very big difference with many other conflict-affected areas where national authorities, if they're not part of the problem, they're definitely not helping to solve the problem. Um, so I think, yes, it, and we have to realize this is a long-term agenda and we are in it. You know, we have... we entered into this commitment we can't just leave it behind like that but already i mean after the initial handover the start you know from a combat mission to a training system vice mission everybody knew it would be a challenging time and there would be um, difficulties particularly in the first year 215 but already now the afghan counterparts although indeed the violence is is ongoing but they feel much more in control um you know in, in 216 compared to 215 um, but as I said, it's, we will be in there for a long time. But I think it's very important to recognize and to support to the maximum possible those men and women in Afghanistan that want to make that change and that take the responsibility and to make sure that we allow them to be in the driver's seat and do the best we can to support them in that endeavor. Absolutely. I agree with that. Um, let's talk about... Um Something which has been, you know, the the, the talk of the halls in, in NATO for the last few months has been um, what the new presidency in the United States, what impact it will have on NATO militarily. Will, you know, will Article 5 stand up? Will... Um, what are, what are going to be the consequences if you're not spending two percent? But I'm interested in your office. What's um, what is what's the gossip about? What kind of impact the Trump presidency might have on the perception of women? Well, obviously, I think that. From my perspective and the work that I'm doing, and also the contact that I have in the United States, but also you know, for in in all kind of in 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 all uh, allied nations. Um, first of all, let's be honest. I mean, there's not only a challenge in the U.S. It became obviously very visible, and it's and it's our biggest ally. So obviously, it does. Uh, uh, we have been looking at it for concern. But from my perspective, I think what it what I see is actually. Um, First and foremost, a re-engagement of men and women that have been rather passive in recognizing, reflecting on actually the value, our foundational values on which we build our alliance, our transatlantic bond, but also the founding principles of the alliance. What is our alliance about and what are we actually defending? And so how do we best safeguard those founding principles which are the very foundation for our peace and security which is fundamental rights uh, fundamental freedoms and what does it mean so the positive news i think is and um that in the past months you see a sort of re-engagement and citizens movements 
um, not only marching, but really trying to figure out that actually we're not there yet. It's not only about women's rights and, and gender equality, but overall when it comes to inclusion, we have a concern that we're drifting apart rather than being together. And what can we all of us do as citizens to build those bridges, to engage people, to increase the cohesion of our society? And what is our individual responsibility in protecting those fundamental, our way of life, right? Which is very much under threat precisely by the threats from outside, right? As we say from east and, 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 and uh, from the east and the south, as we say from a NATO perspective. Um, but the kind of hybrid threats that deliberately that target precisely those foundations of our society and the cohesions of our society. Um, so I think for me, the positive, I'm, I'm really very optimist that we're up to the challenge, both the external and the internal challenges that we face. And I'm very, I'm really inspired to see the, the level of citizens' engagement across the world to start to realize, actually, we have something we don't want to lose. And we are responsible for that. It's not only the, the, the leaders that we elect. We have our role to play in the communities where we are. But as you mentioned, good role models are important. And when you have somebody at the top who is talking about rolling back reproductive rights, who's talking about, um, if you're talking about completing inclusion, you know, transgender rights now um and that just gives a different um a different perspective on on the status mm. of women well again as i said if you look at young generations it makes it very the point very clear that you can never take your freedoms and your rights for granted right um so i think it's it forces us let's say in the west if you can call that to a certain level of modesty right and it also proves the point that we're not there yet Right, and it's only our collective efforts that will help us to 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 safeguard, as I said, these freedoms. We can never take them for granted. None of our countries can, and as I said, they're under attack from different sides, uh, but precisely from within. Right, if you look at the increase of nationalism and populism throughout Europe as well, um, and I see precisely a younger generation, you know, young women and men and women engaging to together to realize that we have to stand up for those rights. Um, it, it, we can never take it for granted. And I think that is very important. And if you then again go back to the alliance, I mean, the treaty that, you know, the founding fathers signed in 1949, right, says that the, we are here to safeguard those fundamental values, um, right? Um, uh, democracy, individual liberty, rule of law, as well as the free institutions, right? Um, and to explain the importance of those free institutions. And I think that is the good news for us. We have, as I said, we have an increased engagement of citizens being aware that they have something they don't want to lose and being able to fight for that. And the other aspect is that we have strong institutions. We have checks and balances that protect our rights, right? So it's also to re appreciate basically the value of those free institutions. Will you feel any differently being an interlocutor with the U.S. administration? Will you feel, feel any differently than you would have with a Hillary Clinton as a president, for example? Well, I mean, if you look at it, I think obviously I, um, the kind of leadership we have in a capital and the political priorities influence the decision-making here in the council, right? And obviously we have some leaders that definitely got a new wind blowing also here right and and um 
So, so you feel even more supported. Is that what you're saying? That you actually feel like people are going, you know what? She she's more important than I thought because I took it for granted that women's rights were on the rise. No, but I think you know this is an alliance. We have to, we are 28 and soon 29. It's not one uh, that decides uh, in the end. And I think also the recent defense ministry uh, ministerial meeting and the very strong statements also from the American. Uh, Secretary of Defense show very much that when it comes to transatlantic bond and to the founding principles that I mean that the alliance is based on those founding principles and we're there to protect those founding principles and it's you know there's a very strong commitment uh, to that so I think that is the basis for working forward uh, and it cannot be it doesn't depend our alliance doesn't depend on individuals in the end right it's built on strong institutions and as an international institutions we're part also of a strong institutions that as a reminder to all of us, like this is the rules of the games we we agreed on, and this is the standard we set, and we will uphold each other to this standard. And to some of these things, when it comes to there was an initial concern, for instance, about women participation in national defense, that's the point of no return. You know, that's it's normal. You know, I I always find it encouraging to meet you know senior. Gen, you know, generals from, from different countries, U.S., Germany, doesn't matter, who all say to me, once I commanded a mixed battalion, I will never again command, agree to command a male-only battalion because it's a different ballgame. I don't have to convince them. We, we are beyond that, right? I said, this is 217. We're not going to have a discussion about that one. Everybody is now convinced about the effectiveness of diversity, right? So... Um, that I'm, I'm not worried about that at all. And as we said, our ambition as an alliance, we set the bar at this has to become the new normal. We are very proud of our about uh, very proud of having the first ever female four star, female three star uh, in a NATO command position. Right, our first ever female deputy secretary general. But over time, what we want is that it doesn't matter who sits there. They're soldiers, they're professionals, they're the best and the brightest that we got for this, right? So that is, it has to be, as I always say, we have to move from the first ever to the new normal. And that is where we're going to. I love that. Um, To wrap up, what can people look at, what can women look at as accomplishments that you actually think will happen in the next, doesn't have to be by the end of your term here at NATO, but in the the next few years, what will we see that's real, um, as you say, irreversible change? For the better. <laughs> yes, what I, I think, um, as I said, it will, the two tracks, I think, first of all, gender sensitivity will just be part and parcel of the toolkit of every security provider, right? To be able to understand what gender is and how it reflects on what you do and what you're trying to achieve, how you can use the gender lens, um, you know, to do what you already do very well, even better, right? And on the diversity, sort of more the in- institutional side, I think, really that inclusion and diversity will be part and parcel of, will fuel, that agenda will fuel the organizational change, um, generate, will be the engine, I think, one of those in general. said this infusion of diverse talent. It's really my hope, and I'm actually convinced it will happen. It will be the engine of the kind of organizational change and adaptation that we need and that we all agree to. Um, and I see with the leadership that we have, that particularly on that agenda, we're going going to get very far uh, in, I dare say, the next two years. And what are you going to do when you leave here? Um, celebrate the talent. No, seriously, I was just talking about that with a colleague. I will. 
what if I leave, I want really to demonstrate to the people that in this building, right, that work either in a representation or in international staff, international military staff, for them um, to celebrate all the talent and the potential that we have here and a general commitment that we will use the full potential of those men and women using in this uh, in this building. So we're going to celebrate the brilliant people that work here. Um, and I will encourage them to share their passion. But you'll go back to the Netherlands? Yes. And and you're, you'll go back to a job in the foreign ministry? Yes. And, yes. And continue working on these issues, I suppose? Yes, continue working in the end, what we all work for, right? To try to do our best in our little corner, to make a difference and to build a better, better world. Thank you very much. You're welcome. And that is all for this Women's Day episode of Channel in Brussels. I'm grateful to NATO's Special Representative for Women, Peace and Security, Maria Schulman, for joining me, and to all of you as well. Thanks to the Atlantic Council for sponsoring this episode of Channel in Brussels. I'm Terry Schultz. Join me next time.